Well, brethren, just over three weeks ago, we ended the seven days of unleavened bread, as we all know, and now we're on the path to Pentecost. The Pentecost count actually began on April 17th, if you were paying attention, which was the morrow after the Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread, the day of the wave sheaf offering, which makes us now on, according to my account, day 28 of the Pentecost count. I was never good at math, so if I made a mistake, we'll blame it on that. But according to my counting this morning, we have 22 days to go. Brethren, have you ever wondered why God chose to organize the festivals the way he did in the order he did? I remember at one point pondering the festival plan of God and wondering why did Pentecost, why did God choose Pentecost to come before or why didn't God choose Pentecost to become, come before the Days of Unleavened Bread? After all, the Days of Unleavened Bread are all about removing sin and putting in righteousness, and we know we can't do that without God's Holy Spirit. So my thinking at one point was, well, wouldn't it have been more logical to have Pentecost, the receiving of the Holy Spirit, and then the Days of Unleavened Bread, which, you know, you're empowered to put out sin and put in righteousness? But God didn't set it up that way. No, instead he has us observe and celebrate the Days of Unleavened Bread first, and then has us celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit next. Think about it. Why, why did God choose to order it that way? Does that make sense? I submit to you that there is a reason for this, and that the Days of Unleavened Bread must come first and be followed by the Day of Pentecost. But I'm not just going to give you the reasons. I could give you a couple reasons today that are perfectly good and logical and just sit down. I'm not going to give you the reasons yet because that wouldn't be a good donut. I got to at least get you to the next exit, not just a few yards down the road. No, there are reasons. Instead of just giving you points as to why Pentecost must come after the Days of Unleavened Bread, we're going to discover the answer or one of the answers to that question through one of the, the experiences of one of God's greatest servants in the New Testament. And I believe within the story of this man's life and experiences is the answer to this question, why Pentecost must come after the Days of Unleavened Bread, why we must focus on the goal first and then the power. This man's life provides the perfect example of the connection between the Days of Unleavened Bread and Pentecost. So I think it's important to, and appropriate to focus our attention on him at this time between the two festivals. We're introduced to this man in the book of Matthew, chapter 4. So let's turn there, Matthew, chapter 4, and see this individual that we're going to examine today. Matthew, chapter 4. An individual probably we have all studied and considered, admire, sometimes shake your head at. A very interesting man that God called and worked with. Matthew chapter 4, and let's start reading in verse 18. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So here we're introduced to the man we're going to look at today. Simon called Peter, or as we know him better, Peter, the Apostle Peter. As we see here, Peter begins as a fisherman by trade. In fact, he ran a commercial fishing business, we would say, in the modern language. We would say he was in a partnership with his brother and in a partnership, it seems, with the Zebedee family, with James and John. 
and they ran this commercial business. And it seemed like it was a successful business. He pretty much had his life mapped out for him, working this business up there around the Sea of Galilee. He's a fascinating personality to study. He probably is one of the most relatable personalities in the Bible, in part because he was in so many ways, at least at the beginning, a flawed individual. Again, at the start. He was one of those guys who, I think we could describe him as a guy who wore his weaknesses on his sleeve. You know, Peter is clearly, if you study him and think of it in the term of, in the, in the parlance of personalities, he, he seems to be very much an extroverted personality, a very much an extrovert. And sometimes extreme extroverts have a tendency to wear their weaknesses on the sleeves, on their sleeves. Sometimes us introverts, you know, we can hide our flaws a little better. We're quiet, we're cautious, we're reserved, so we can kind of hide them better. But Peter, being the extrovert, being the big personality he was, didn't naturally keep his flaws to himself. They were right there, often right out there in the open. Sometimes he just couldn't control himself as far as his mouth went. Contrast that with John, John the son of Zebedee, who seems according to my reading, to be more of an introverted personality. A man who had weaknesses, clearly, but he kind of kept them, he was able to keep them under wraps a little bit better. But Peter was a little different. Peter, again, was a guy who wore, could wear his flaws on his sleeve. But as we'll see, one of the biggest lessons of Peter is not who he was when he started. The biggest lesson of Peter is who he became. So today, we're going to look at Peter, and our title is Unleavened Bread, Pentecost, and Peter. Unleavened Bread, Pentecost, and Peter. So let's explore some of the highlights of Peter's life and see what we can learn. Because we're not just going to focus on the facts of Peter's life, but we're going to try to see our lives, our calling, through the prism of the Apostle Peter. Because in many ways, Peter's story is also our story. So let's continue reading here in verse 19. Go down a little bit to verse 19. Then he, or Jesus, said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. So here we see what we would consider Peter's calling, his drawing. Jesus Christ personally called Peter to follow him, to be a disciple. That's what the calling is all about. And he talks about making Peter and Andrew, but we're focusing on Peter, fishers of men. But notice he doesn't say, you are now fishers of men. The wording is, I will make you fishers of men. They weren't going to be fishers of men immediately. They were going to start as students. They were going to start a process that would lead to them being able to be fishers of men. But they needed training. Peter had to first be a student before he could become a fisher of men. The path from Simon the fisher man to Peter the fisher of men was going to be a process. Sometimes a painful process, as we'll, as we'll read. Sometimes a rocky process, and frankly, sometimes an embarrassing process. But it was going to be a process. Which leads us to lesson number one from the life of Peter. Lesson number one, God calls us to be students before teachers. Lesson number one is God calls us to be students before teachers. Peter's calling perfectly represents how God works with us today. First, he calls us to be learners, disciples, students. We learn by following him. We learn by following the example of the master, of course, the same master Peter had, Jesus Christ. Now, for Peter, that literally meant 
following Jesus Christ physically for about three and a half years, being directly taught by him, trained by him, sometimes, as we'll see, even corrected by him. For us, that means we're called into the church of God. We're fed by Christ through the church and through studying the word of God. You know, Mr. Armstrong used to refer to the church as a teacher's college. That's a good analogy because we're in training to learn to teach, to be leaders later. That's one of the core truths we understand and we, we talk about during the Feast of Tabernacles. We see our calling at, in this age as training and preparation for future service. God's way of life is, in essence, training us to be fishers of men, kings and priests in the kingdom of God, just as Peter was to do in his life. Another remarkable thing about Peter and the others was how they were willing to drop everything. He walked away from a profitable business. He, he had his life planned and mapped out for him. You know, he could have retired on that business, and it led a pretty good, easy, comfortable life, most likely. But he left it behind. He walked away. And likewise, when we're called, when God calls us, there are things we have to walk away from. There are things that we have to give up in order to follow God, in order to obey God, in order to become a full-time disciple. He couldn't be a fisher man and a fisher of men at the same time. He had to leave that lifestyle. Not that there was anything sinful about being a fisherman, but it wasn't what he was called to do. To fulfill his calling, he had to leave that behind. And, you know, that's a lesson we focus on during the Days of Unleavened Bread, that we, you know, we leave leavening behind. We leave sin behind. We give it up, and we give up this world. We leave the world behind, and we focus on that during the Days of Unleavened Bread. The decision to leave the world behind, to leave sin behind, to leave the past behind, that's the first step of the calling process. It was the first step of Peter's calling process. It was the first step of our calling process, or will be, if we're, we have not been called yet. Now, when we think of Peter, we typically characterize him correctly, in many cases, as a person of great self-confidence. You know, he, he was pretty self-confident. He, he had a high opinion of himself at times. And it got him in trouble at times, as we'll see. But there was more to him than just that bluster and self-confidence. I, I think we do a disservice if we think that's all there was to Peter, even at this early point in his calling. Let's look at Luke chapter 5. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. And we'll see a, a little interesting tidbit that I really hadn't even focused on before. But I think this gives us a hint as to why God chose Peter for the specific reason he chose him for. Luke chapter 5, and we'll start reading in verse 1. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. We read, So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that's Jesus, they wanted to hear him, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, or Galilee, Let's skip down to verse 3. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, so he's in Simon's fishing boat here, and asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. Most scholars believe the reason he did this, not just to get away from them uh, getting too close to him, but also to use the water as a natural amplification system. He could bounce his voice off the water and reach uh, a large group of people that way with his message. But Lotus verse 4, when he had stopped speaking, he turns to Peter, he turns to Simon and says, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. 
Verse 5, but Simon answered and said to him, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing, but nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. So, you know, there's a little bit of Peter, Peter's personality, like there's nothing, they're, they're not biting today, but you know, whatever you say. So he has doubts, he verbalized them, but he still did what Jesus said to his honor. Verse 6, and when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. Now, Peter clearly knew this was a miracle. He knew they were not biting. He knew this was probably an extremely abnormal catch for that, for that place. He'd probably never seen anything like it, and he had spent his life, most likely, by that lake. So they signaled to their partners, verse 7, in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. So there are so many fish that they can't even put them in the boats without the boat starting to sink. But notice Peter's response, verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Interesting. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's, That's not a phrase that you would naturally think would come from a guy like Peter with what we know about him. But that is what he said. And I think this is where we really begin to see Peter's humanity showing here. I think this is the moment it really sank into him who exactly Jesus was, because he knew that miracle was physically impossible. He had never seen anything like it, and who knows how old he was, but probably in his early 20s at this point, he had never seen anything like it. He knew it was from God. And once Peter really understood that this was the Christ, no doubt about it, the Son of God, you know, now thoughts of self-doubt and unworthiness enter. And at that point, he doesn't pretend to be super righteous or super worthy or super deserving of being there. At this point, he he looks at himself. I think he looks inward and says, he he sees his flaws and shortcomings. You know, he knew he was Mr. Big Mouth at times. You know, that's, it's kind of scary to be Mr. Big Mouth and to be walking around with your creator all the time. What am I going to say? He knew he had a problem with foul language. We'll see that that was a problem he had at points. Foul language. You know, he had to tame that down. He knew he had a violent streak. He knew he could be arrogant and obnoxious. So when he realizes that he is with the Son of God, his first inclination, his first response is, I'm I'm not worthy to be here. You know, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. I'm not your guy. I can't do this. I'm not the person you think I am. You know, and I really think that's one of the reasons why God did choose Peter and did work with him, because he saw this. Despite all the blusters, despite the personality issues, despite, you know, his big mouth, the cockiness, maybe a little bit of arrogance, there was something there that God saw that he could work with. And I think right here is where we see it. There was an inner realization of who he was, of who he was. Because God wasn't just calling Peter to be a fisher of men, he was also calling him to repentance. And that process always begins with this kind of attitude, doesn't it? The humility to recognize who we are, the humility to be able to see ourselves for what we are, the humility to be able to see our personal need to repent. God can't work with somebody who can't get to that point. And he couldn't have worked with Peter if this wasn't a part of his character. So I think God saw that, and he said, there there is something I can work with. No, Peter was not a perfect man, and he had a lot of rough edges, and he had a long way to go. But it was this willingness to recognize and see himself for who he was that God could 
decide, yes, this is a man I can work with. This is a man who can be the fisher of men. Which leads us to lesson number two. Lesson number two, God can only work with people who see themselves realistically. God can only work with people who see themselves realistically. And I think we know what that means. God's word says we can only be forgiven if we're open with God about our sins and confess them to him. It's impossible to be forgiven unless that's a part of the process. You have to first admit what you are and admit what you've done before God can begin the process of forgiveness. We can't be the people God calls us to be unless we have a deep recognition that we need to grow past where we are when we start. And that's where this begins to tie closer into the Days of Unleavened Bread, because to keep the Days of Unleavened Bread, think about it, we have to begin with the knowledge of leaven. We have to recognize we're leavened, our lives are leavened, our cars are leavened, our offices are leavened, our, our, our bedrooms are leavened, our kitchen especially is leavened. We are leavened. You can't keep the days of unleavened bread without first going into it, realizing and admitting, I am leavened. You can't de-leaven your life unless you know that you have leavening that needs to go. And likewise, you can't de-sin your life unless you know you have sin inside and all around you and that it needs to go. And Peter understood that. So back to Peter now. The exact reason he thought disqualified him from being a disciple was the very reason that made him qualified, in a sense. It's really interesting. You know, we often give Peter a hard time, and there are some reasons he deserves that at certain points. But I think here we see the reason why, again, God chose to work with him. Because at his core, he honestly and humbly saw himself realistically. He still had a lot to learn. He had a lot of growth to do. He had a lot of changing to do. But he started out with that basic requirement. I am a sinful man, O Lord. You know, this reminds me, and it should remind all of us, of King David. Let's turn back really quick to Psalm 51. Because why was King David a man after God's own heart? Was it because he was a perfect model of righteousness? He was not. Was it because he didn't have sin that he needed to deal with? He did. But the reason God could work with David and the reason God could work with Peter is the same reason. And we see that back here in Psalm 51. We see this basic attitude. Now this, of course, isn't the beginning of David's journey, but it shows he had this same basic attitude and realization that Peter did. Psalm 51, verses 3 through 4. For I acknowledge my transgressions, I acknowledge my sin, and my sin is always before me. Complete honesty, complete realization of it. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Very similar to the the spirit and the, the content of what Peter said back there in Luke. I am a sinful man, O Lord. It's it's the same attitude that David had. It's the same attitude all of God's servants have. And this is an attitude that we need to have, especially as we approach baptism. But as we see with David, this happened in the middle of his life. It's an attitude and a realization we have to continually maintain. So lesson two is God could only work with Peter and also David and also me and also you because they saw themselves realistically. And likewise, we must see ourselves realistically. That's the attitude that allows God to work with us. So back to Peter's life now. 
We know Peter was called to be one of the 12 disciples, eventually apostles. He was also part of that special inner circle that Christ gave special attention to, special training to, because of the the special role they would have in the future. Let's look at a few examples of the training he received and see other hints as to why God called him. Let's look at John chapter 6. Let's look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and we'll look at verse, we'll start in verse 66. Now the context of this is that Jesus had recently said something that offended a number of people. He talked about, he was foreshadowing, talking about what would eventually we would understand to be the Passover, and he talked about that concept of feeding on his flesh and blood, which to many people sounded like cannibalism. Of course, they didn't discern it spiritually, but just listening to it at the surface, that's how they interpreted it. And many people got offended by that and left. They, could, they just could not accept, you're saying we need to eat your, your body and drink your blood and to be a disciple. They didn't understand the spiritual element. So verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. So Jesus lost people because of this teaching. He lost people. Yeah. People left the church even when Jesus Christ led, you know, if you want to call the group of disciples the church at that time, were the equivalent of it. Verse 67, then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go back? You know, are you, are you going to take off too? Verse 68, notice Simon Peter. But Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 68 is what we're focusing on. To who else should we go? You have the words of eternal life. You're our teacher. You're the teacher with a capital T. This shows us that Peter had a desire to learn. Peter had a desire to learn from Jesus Christ. He was a student, first and foremost, at this point. He was able to go from being, you know, running, managing a commercial fishing business to now being in a student role. Again, he had the humility to be able to change roles like that. He also was one of the first to openly profess his personal belief that this was the Messiah, the Christ. And because of that belief, he followed Christ for three and a half years, not just because of that belief, but because he desired the training, the education. He wanted to learn, as he says here, the words of eternal life. That was what he was there for, and he knew there was no other source for that. He, you know, he, he could see you know, the Pharisees there, the Sadducees know, the Pharisees know, nobody else, this is the source. He clearly knew that. But this ties back to the question we opened up with, a form of it, Was it just a matter of education and knowledge for Peter? Did just learning the words of eternal life make Peter the man he needed to be, that he was called to be? Was just learning the knowledge all that it was about? It's interesting, Peter was a good student. Think about that question as we we continue on, but was it just a matter of education and knowledge? Turn to Matthew 15. Turn back to Matthew 15. We'll see that Peter really did have all the characteristics of an excellent student, what we would call it FI, uh, uh, you know, the, the ideal student. Peter was a good student. Not perfect, but he was a good student because he was there for the right reasons. And again, I think that teachability was another thing that God saw. I can work with that. He saw that, Colonel. I can, I can, 
I can maximize that. I can turn that into something better. Matthew 15, verse 10. Matthew 15, verse 10. When he, Jesus, had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand. Verse 11. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. So Jesus is talking about our speech, you know, and that the real defilement is when you speak wrong things. You know, that could be foul language, that can be uh, criticism, that could be, you know, calling people names, putting people down. But so keep this in mind, Jesus, uh, Peter, I'm sorry, Peter had learned, he had been educated in the issues of speech and the importance of righteous speech. Christ here clearly is talking about the mouth and speech. So Peter had education in that. Let's, Let's go on, verse 12. Then his disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? You offended the Pharisees. Like that's, they're, they're, they're very important people. Verse 13, but Jesus answered and said to them, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. In other words, I'm not working with them. God is not working with them right now. It's not, it's not their time right now. Verse 14, let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. You know, they're deceived. They're doing their thing. Leave them alone. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a ditch. But notice verse 15. Then Peter answered and said to to him, explain this parable to us. Now, that may just be easy to read right over. Okay, he said, explain it. Okay, let's move on. But we see here the active learner, Peter. I don't quite understand what you're saying. I don't fully get it. Explain it to me. Keep talking. Enlighten me. Active learning, active listening. When he didn't understand something, he asked questions. When he didn't fully comprehend, he probed for more. That's a good thing. That was a good thing about Peter. He was a man who desired to learn. And he did learn a lot over those three and a half years. He was given access to a lot of knowledge, which leads us to lesson three. Peter had a thorough three and a half year education at the feet of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's That's master's level, graduate level education in the way of God, following the Son of God for three and a half years. He was a good student. He learned. He learned a lot of information. He learned a lot of example by just watching Christ. Remember, he was with Christ constantly. He probably heard nearly every teaching in its full depth that that we read about in the New Testament that Christ gave during his ministry, Peter was there. You know, and I think sometimes, I think we just sometimes have the summary statements of what Peter, what Christ said. I think there was a lot more to his discourses and sermons. We have summaries of it, you know, that fit in the scriptures. But Peter heard all of it. Peter was there. He was there for the Sermon on the Mount. He was there for the Olivet Prophecy. He learned from all those interactions with the Pharisees. He was there for all the discourses and conversations we don't even have a record of that weren't preserved in the Word of God. And the personal application point to this is that we have to be like Peter, serious and avid students of the Word of God, a desire to, as Peter would later say, the old Peter, grow in knowledge. He would write that later to people when he was the old man, the fisher of men. Grow in knowledge. You need to grow in grace and knowledge. Knowledge is important. So we also have to have the same desire for knowledge, the same desire to be a disciple or student. But that now leads us to the transition point. A transition point in this message. And the question we have now is, did knowledge and education 
We've just been emphasizing knowledge and education and learning, but did that make Peter the man that he was called to be? Did that make him the Christian, the leader, the example, the fisher of men that he was called to be? Was it just a matter of education? Which leads to an even bigger question for us, is true Christianity merely a knowledge issue? The more you learn, the better you are. The more you read, the more you grow. Is it, is it, does it work like that? Is it just a matter of education? Back to our introduction and back to the theme of the Days of Unleavened Bread, knowledge is a big part of the Days of Unleavened Bread, isn't it? You know, in order to keep the Days of Unleavened Bread, first of all, you have to know about it. You have to know about Leviticus 23, and you have to know about the festival. And you also have to have a knowledge, certain amount of knowledge about what leaven is, right? You have to know what leaven is in order to get rid of it. You have to know what unleavened food is in order to put it in, in order to eat it. Likewise, the spiritual parallel, we must know what sin is in order to avoid it. So you have to have a certain amount of knowledge in order to overcome sin. We have to know what righteousness is in order to put it on. So it all begins and starts with knowledge, doesn't it? It's so important. You can't de-emphasize knowledge, but you also can't allow it, allow it to stand by itself. So let's look at another example of Peter that demonstrates that knowledge alone wasn't enough. Knowledge alone wasn't enough. Let's look at Matthew chapter 16. We're pretty close. Matthew chapter 16. And we'll start to see some of the elements that are a little, more, a little less comfortable about Peter. A little of the, the rough, a few of the rough edges that we talked about earlier, because Peter did have rough edges. And he was by no means a perfect man or, at this point, ready to be the fisher of men. Matthew 16, and we'll look at verse 21 and 23. Matthew 16, verse 21 and 23. From that time, Jesus began to show, or we could say he began to educate, his disciples, that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. So he's educating them in what's coming. Now, they had read the prophecies in the Old Testament that alluded to this, but he was giving them further clear education. This is what's going to happen to me. This is what has to happen to me. Verse 22. So education happened, but look at Peter's response to it in verse 22. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Correct him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Now, you can think of that as a noble response, but it really was not a noble response. We already knew that Peter knew and was convicted that Christ was the Son of God. He understood his authority, his identity. He knew he spoke the words of eternal life, but here we see him disagreeing with him and even going far as far as correcting him, his creator. disagreeing with his teacher, with his creator. And Christ understood this was deadly serious. To disagree with him was deadly serious, and that's why he responded in verse 23. He turns and say, says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men, which I'm sure knocked Peter down emotionally. So despite Peter's knowledge that Jesus was the Son of God, that his words were true, he still was capable of disagreeing with him. Isn't that incredible? At this point in life, he was capable of trying to correct his creator. 
no, you're not, that's not going to happen to you. You're not correct on that, because that's essentially what he was saying. You are wrong on that. We're not going to let that happen. Knowledge and intellectual understanding didn't make Peter immune to this problem within himself, the problem of being hostile to his creator. Think of the carnal mind, Romans chapter 8, enmity against God, disagreeing with your creator. Again, knowledge didn't keep Peter from this problem. Now, we're not going to read John chapter 13. We read that a few weeks ago about the foot washing, but he does it again there where Christ says, I'm going to wash your feet. And again, Peter, using human reasoning, disagrees with his creator, challenges his creator. No, you're not going to wash my feet. Excuse me? And then when Christ says, yes, I'm going to wash your feet, then he swings to the other extreme and says, okay, wash my entire body. Ah, Stay in the middle, Peter. Stay balanced. You know, he had a tendency to go to the extremes, but the, the core problem was questioning his creator, again, trying to correct his creator. So there was still this enmity in the man. There was still something missing in him. Let's look at John chapter 18. John chapter 18. So we see it gets even worse as as Peter, this entire time surrounding Christ's arrest and crucifixion, Peter, when he most needed to be his best self, really fails and really shows there's something missing. And we see it comes out in an even more radical, extreme way here. I mean, he's already disagreed with his creator a couple times, and there's more we could have looked at. John 18, let's look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, of course, this is when Christ is in the garden and they're coming to arrest him. Again, it wasn't a matter of education and knowledge. Christ had told him multiple times, I'm going to be arrested, betrayed, and this is going to happen to me. Peter still didn't believe it. Education wasn't enough. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, we're breaking into the context, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Many people have commented in the past, he wasn't going for the ear. Nobody really aims for the ear. Nobody tries to take off someone's ear. He was going for the head. It just shows that he was a skilled fisherman, not necessarily a skilled swordsman. But that's probably a good thing for Malchus. And the servant's servant's name was Malchus. Verse 11, and Jesus said to Peter, again, he, he gets the correction, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? You know, Christ could have even laid it on heavier. How many times have I told you this is going to happen? What what part of this is going to happen do you not understand? He could have done that. He He was somewhat gentle here. But again, Peter still didn't get it. It wasn't a matter of lack of knowledge. There was something missing. So the so he tries to kill this man. He tries to resort to violence. Again, Peter had already been told this is what has to happen for God's plan to move forward. So again, he had the knowledge. He was choosing to ignore that or not really fully let it sink in. But number two, he had sat through the Sermon on the Mount. Think of what was part of the content of the Sermon on the Mount. Christ talks about the sixth commandment. He talks about hate. He talks about physical violence. Peter had knowledge that physical violence wasn't what he should be doing. 
He understood that he should not be attacking this man physically. He should not be allowing this anger and hate to be coming out in a violent, in, into violence. He knew that principle. He knew the Sixth Commandment. He knew the spirit of the Sixth Commandment. We know he knew it because he was there at the Sermon on the Mount. It wasn't just a matter of knowledge because what he learned should have prevented this, but he still did it. He still tried to take out Malchus's head, take off Malchus's head, thankfully missing. So there was something missing in Peter. Let's look at Matthew 26. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. If you think he hadn't completely blown it, he went even farther. It gets worse for Peter. This was not a good night for Peter. Matthew chapter 26. Let's look at verse 69. Matthew 26, verse 69. So Christ is arrested and the trial is going on, and this is kind of transitioning us. It changes scenes, and we see Peter kind of milling around the edges of this area. Verse 69, now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him saying, you were with Jesus of Nazareth. You were with Jesus of Galilee. Verse 70, but he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you're saying. I had never met the man. First of all, this was a lie, right? This was a lie. But second of all, it was a stupid lie. He had spent three and a half years with this person. So it would be like me standing up here and telling you, I've never met Dr. Levy. I've never met him. Even though I work in the same office, I've worked in the same office for nine years. I've never met the man. Obviously, that would be a lie, and a ridiculous lie at that. So Peter, again, faltered here, but it wasn't a lack of knowledge. He understood lying was a sin. You know, he had heard John 8, Christ likens lying to Satan's character. He is a liar. He's the father of it. But that knowledge really didn't sink in because still, when it becomes crunch time here, he lies to the girl. And even a, a crazy, obnoxious, obvious lie, easily disproven. Verse 71. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him. It's interesting that the young girls are the ones who have the, the courage uh, to, to speak up. Never underestimate a young girl. Sometimes they have more courage than we think. So a girl, where are we? Another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. I saw him personally. I know him. I saw him. Jesus was in Jerusalem enough. I've, I've, I passed by the group many times. He was there. Verse 72, but again, he denied with an oath, saying, I do not know the man. Again, a second lie. He lies again, of course, also betraying his, his master, as Christ said he would. But it was a lie. It was a betrayal, and it was a lie, you know, a, a, a double bad thing to do. Verse 73, and a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for your speech betrays you. You sound just like a Galilean. He's a Galilean. You are a Galilean. I can tell from your speech. Not only did we see you with him, you sound like him. Verse 74, then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Very interesting that the writer does not, does not, uh, write in the cursing and swear words. He just tells them that's what he did. He doesn't give all the, 
the bad details, but that's what he did. He cursed and sweared. The old fisherman came out again. So not only does he lie, which he knows is wrong, but he knows, again, Matthew 15, what comes out of the mouth of a man defiles him. He had knowledge. He knew talking like that was wrong. The knowledge didn't stop him from doing it, did it? And that leads us to lesson number four. Lesson number four is knowledge by itself isn't enough. Knowledge by itself isn't enough. I think we've thoroughly proved that. Peter had a lot of knowledge, a lot of understanding, a lot of training. But when the rubber met the road in these stressful situations, that wasn't enough. In some of the most significant moments of his life up to that point, he faltered. The knowledge that he had gained from three and a half years as a disciple to the greatest teacher who ever walked the face of the earth did not automatically lead him to spiritual success in this circumstance. Again, he knew God's law. He knew Jesus' words. He knew what sin is. He knew at least some of what righteousness was. He knew the goal, but it wasn't enough. Again, that's not to belittle or de-emphasize knowledge. We need knowledge. That's where he started. It's just saying that knowledge by itself is insufficient. It's not enough. It's essential, but you have to go farther. Going back to the days of unleavened bread, just knowing what leavening is or just knowing what sin is isn't enough. Knowing what unleavened bread is or what righteousness is isn't enough. Another element is needed, and I'm sure you're ahead of me on that. Now, before we all tie this together, let's look at verse 75, because we don't want to completely leave Peter in such a negative light. Verse 75, immediately, well, the, immediately the rooster crowed, verse 75, and Peter remembered the words of Jesus who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. You know, it, 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 impact him, it impacted him emotionally. He kind of, the realization of all these wrong things, all these bad decisions, all these sins, frankly, you know, came on him at that time. He realized that he, you know, the in the Old Testament, the, the phrase, he came to himself. Well, no, that's the, the prodigal son. He came to himself. He realized it. He recognized his sin. He recognized the betrayal. But the amazing thing is, and the, and the thing we have to emphasize in Peter's credit, he repented of it. He repented of it. He goes out. He cries. Now, we, just that statement alone doesn't prove that Peter repented. But how do we know Peter repented? Because at the end of the three days and three nights, where was he? He was there. He was with the disciples. He was there to meet Christ after his resurrection. He stuck with it. No doubt deeply humbled, deeply cognizant of his insufficiency in this area, area even, even more than when he began three and a half years earlier, but he was still there. He wasn't like Judas. He didn't, he didn't end his life, and he wasn't like the other disciples earlier who just walked away when something came across that bothered them. No, he was there. He was there. He stuck with it. And of course, that leads us to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. Acts begins in the time period we are in right now, the time period between the wave sheaf offering, or the Days of Unleavened Bread, and Pentecost. And where do we see Peter? Acts chapter 1. Again, the, the scripture doesn't specifically say Peter went out and repented bitterly and then came back. It doesn't say that, but we know that's what happened because where is he? 
Acts chapter 1, verse 4. We see the disciples assembled together, what the closest thing that could be called a church before the day of Pentecost. They're, cl- they're assembled together. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them, Jesus, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Skip down to verse 8. We know Peter is there. Verse 8. And what does he tell Peter, James, John, and the rest of the disciples and the rest of the people who were there? And you shall receive power, power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to to the end of the age. Power, the Holy Spirit. And then the mission, which essentially was being the fisher of men, going out and spreading the gospel to the world. This was the missing dimension that Peter and the other disciples needed. This is what they still lacked at this point. This is what would transform Peter from the man who had a lot of knowledge, a lot of education, a lot of training, to a completely different person, to a new man, to a converted person. This is the missing dimension that would empower him to use that knowledge, to take that knowledge, and to put it into action, to put it into action into his life. So now we move forward to Acts chapter 2, which of course we'll, we'll hear more about in the coming weeks as Pentecost approaches. But it's just incredible to see the transition and to see the missing dimension. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place together. Again, he's with the church. He did not leave the fellowship. Verse 2, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. Verse 4, and here's the key. Here's where it's all leading to. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And what does that empower Peter to do? Verse 14, we see a completely different person. Verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. Skip down to verse 37. We don't have time to go through that entire message. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they heard this incredible impromptu sermon. You know, an amazing sermon. There's no indication that Peter had prepared for that, but they hear this incredibly well-constructed, logical, scripturally grounded sermon Verse 37, and when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And who's there? Who's there in verse 38? The fisher of men. And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord will call. There's so much more to dissect there, and I'm sure that will happen in the next few weeks. But the emphasis is this was a different person. This was a different Peter. This isn't the same man from 50 days earlier. This isn't the man who disagreed with and challenged God in the flesh. This isn't the man who tried to cut a man's head off. This wasn't the guy who denied even knowing somebody he very publicly spent three and a half years with. And this wasn't the man who cussed like a sailor. This was, we could say, Peter 2.0 converted Peter, empowered Peter, the Peter putting the knowledge that he had received for that training period to use, to action, 
This was, a, yes, a humble Peter, but a Peter ready to dedicate the rest of his life to preaching the gospel and feeding the flock. Which leads us to our final point, point number five. Knowledge must be combined with God's spirit. That's what it's all leading up to. Knowledge must be combined with God's spirit. And the Holy Spirit is given to us to help us internalize and practice the knowledge we receive from God's word. It helps it go from just being head knowledge, which again, where, where Peter really was 50 days earlier, he had a lot of head knowledge to you know, what, what's been called heart knowledge, understanding it deeply, internalizing it, having it written on his heart. Two final scriptures to see how this process works. Let's look at Acts 5. We're in the book of Acts. Let's go to Acts 5. It gives us a general principle to the method and the order God uses in calling people. And it's essential that we understand it. And it all ties into why the Days of Unleavened Bread must come before Pentecost. Acts chapter 5 and verse 32. Very important doctrinal scripture. Acts 5 verse 32. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, which God has given to those who obey him. You see, obedience, a certain level of obedience at least, comes before receiving the Holy Spirit. Obedience again, requires knowledge. You can't obey what you don't have a knowledge of. You can't obey a law, a law that you don't know about, that you don't have education in. So the true calling is very different from what we see in the Protestant world. In the Protestant world, we often see an emotional, an emotional message, and people are emotionally driven to give their heart to the Lord, or maybe be baptized, or just profess a certain amount of faith without really any knowledge to precede it. There's not a big emphasis on knowledge, but God's calling is completely different. God's calling begins with knowledge and education, and then the Holy Spirit is given, after baptism and laying on of hands, to put that knowledge into action, and of course, to help activate us to be able to learn more knowledge and to grow in knowledge, as Peter would say later in his life. It's a reciprocal relationship. It begins with knowledge, we receive power, and then the power helps us grow in more knowledge. Let's look at John chapter 14. John chapter 14, and this will be our final scripture. We're almost to that exit. John chapter 14. And verses 15 through 16. Again, I think this is another scripture that beautifully harmonizes it all together. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 16. If you love me, keep my commandments. Again, knowledge. You need knowledge to keep the commandments. And Christ says, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. So after that, the help, the power, another helper, that it may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth, which the world cannot receive, because it neither sees it nor knows it, but you know it, for it dwells with you and will be in you, inside of you. That was the missing dimension. Before, Peter had it with him. The disciples had it with him, but Pentecost put it within them, and that gave them the power to move forward. It gave them the power to be the people they were called to be. So Pentecost, receiving the power of God's Spirit, truly was the missing dimension that empowered Peter and the others to become new men, converted, spiritually minded, moving past and fighting the carnal mind. Did it make them perfect? No, 
It didn't make them perfect. We know that Peter still struggled at times. Just read Galatians 2 and the whole circumstance in Antioch. Peter, Peter had still had his moments. He still made mistakes, but he was on that path to perfection because he had that power. So, brethren, let's conclude and tie this all together by going back to the question we opened with. Why did God place the Days of Unleavened Bread before the Feast of Pentecost? Why do we celebrate the goal before we celebrate the power to achieve the goal? Because that's how God's calling works. God's calling, the process begins with knowledge. We learn what God expects of us. We learn what sin is. We learn what righteousness is. We learn what God means when he says, you need to go on to perfection. Be you therefore perfect as I am perfect. We understand and learn the goal. But then we go on to the need for the help to achieve the goal, the power. We can't truly act on the knowledge alone by ourselves, by our own power. That's what Peter tried to do, and it didn't work for him. And Peter's life was a complete, great personification of this. He starts with knowledge. He learns for three and a half years at the feet of the greatest teacher. But again, that takes him only so far, and we saw how far. It, it took him up to a, 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 a wall, and he could go no further. He had the knowledge, but when, when the rubber met the road, he couldn't really stand and be the leader and the man he was called to be. He could only go on to the next step. He could really live and live that knowledge and apply that knowledge after he received the power of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. He could only go from the fisher man to the fisher of men after Pentecost, once he had the power. So in God's festival plan, we celebrate the goal first. That's what we do during the Days of Unleavened Bread. If you summarize the Days of Unleavened Bread, it's all about the goal. It's all about the goal. Put on righteousness, put off sin. And it's about who God wants us to be. Character defined by righteousness, sincerity, and truth. But then we go on to Pentecost. Then we celebrate the power given to achieve the goal, the power of the Holy Spirit. So brethren, as we go through these days, these remaining days before Pentecost, let's focus on the lessons of Peter's life, as well as that intimate connection between the festival we just completed roughly three weeks ago and the festival we'll observe in 22 days on Sunday, June 6th, Pentecost. A few weeks ago, we focused on the knowledge and the goal, and in 22 days, we'll focus on the power.